0: So I'll start with the, the Muslim greeting of uh, Assalamu alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, which is, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be on, upon all of you. My perspective on, on the topic is that of an average Muslim, uh, not a scholar, not an academic, not a theologian, not an activist. It's just what happens on the street, at home, in the small circles of Muslim families. What do we talk about? Uh, what are our challenges? And uh, to share that with you. And then uh, I'll ask for something back at the end, <laughs> if I may. So let's, let's kind of just step back a few years, back to 250 A.D., more than a few years, <laughs> and talk about the times of the Roman emperor Decius and the story of some young that just decided to stand for what they believe. In the Christian uh, tradition, we're going to talk about the seven sleepers of Ephesus. <laughs> this story is um, is a holiday in many regions of the world. And in the holy Muslim book, the Quran, a whole chapter is dedicated to those youth, mainly, and named after them. In in Islam, it's the chapter of the people of the cave, or Ahlul Kahf, uh, or in Christian tradition is the seven sleepers of Ephesus. Youth are supposed to be cool. They're supposed to conform. They're supposed to blend in. They're supposed to do what's easy. These guys decided to stand against all of that. They decided to stand for what they believed in because they were prosecuted for their faith. Only a few hundred years later, when Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire, that their story became celebrated but like many that stand for the right thing are usually prosecuted I'm absolutely fascinated by this chapter because every time I read it it just it has to mean something to me because our Quran, our book has to relate to what we face every day so the chapter 18 verse 9 to 26 is their story and when God Almighty made their hearts firm and strong and made them bear the separation of their kit and kin, then they stood up. They didn't hide, they stood up. They stood up for what they believed in. And when they fought and fought and fought and fought and fought, they lost. The verdict from the state was for them to be executed. After they fought everything, they could have easily just said, Yeah, we're not gonna believe in. God Almighty, we're not going to believe in our faith, our religion, we're just going to conform. They never said that. They stood up and um, execution was their verdict. So they escaped to the cave. And the story goes that they were in the cave for 300 plus years. And the miracle is that when the farmer that went and decided to open that cave, this 300 years later, not knowing what's there, there were just seven young men sleeping looks like they were just sleeping probably a day or part of a day but then when they looked at their clothes the way they talk the currency they have in their pocket then the miracle became apparent but these folks by the miracle of God have been preserved for 300 years so why does the Quran tell me this story and why does it mean to me and to us today the Quran has a lot of stories but every single detail in there has a purpose And in many of the stories of Moses, Joseph, Jesus, etc., a lot of detail is left off, like names and dates, sometimes even locations, because God is telling us about the lessons, not the details of a story to entertain, necessarily. But in this chapter, their age was called out. Youth. The youth. Right? Because, as we mentioned, to do what they did as young people is extremely difficult. Right, So, the reason I shared this with you because I have to, again, relate what the Quran teaches me to my children. I have three crazy boys. <laughs> They're crazy. Six months, five years, and 12 years old. So, I am busy. So, they watch the media, they watch the news, they see what's going on, they see the youth movement. Either now, or if they watch documentaries about civil rights movement, they see that these great changes in our society were... Fought and driven and the grassroots level of work was done by young people and now I think for my 12 year old it's time to just have that talk what do I expect from you and for a long period of time I, I have seen the in, uh, inability of Muslim youth to construct their identity because other people do it for them I have seen them try to create new identities and then they are caught in between their Muslim circles and family and friends, that you're not Muslim enough. And between their American friends, that they are, you're not American enough. And they are just lost, vexed, stressed, depressed in between. So there is an internalized racism and Islamophobia in them. That, And if you know anything about insecurity, it always begets idleness. At best, idleness. At worst, terrorism. Okay? And that's the, those are the things that I am worried about. And a lot of Muslims are worried about when they're looking at their preteen, tweens, and teenagers. And even even in college. So a lot of us are always talking, Muslim families, young families, all families, we've got to save our youth. This chapter taught me that the youth will save us. Because they are the ones that have the energy. They are the ones that are not tied up to this worldly life of their jobs, their securities, their circle, etc. they'll just do what they believe is right if they have an identity they can attach to, an American, Muslim, comfortable identity. And if I get my son to have a good 10%, 20% of that, I, I have succeeded. I hope I have succeeded. Luckily, with some of the works that uh, Christina and Malo do here up out in the media and et cetera, what they do, show the fruits of what an engaged, positive, confident, young American Muslim can do, right? When they are attached to charitable work within their Muslim chapters, mosques, MSAs, Muslim Student Associations, that confidence is just skyrocketed. They're engaged, they embrace their identity. They're helping the community around them, homeless people, people with no Um, Healthcare. In our mosque we have free clinic every Saturday. Come in, it's open, anybody. And when the youth are involved with that, you can see them just blossom. Because they're doing it as American Muslims, helping the community around them. Become comfortable with being American and Muslim. So that's our challenges. Also, young people that are faced with racism, they're always taught to seek role models from within the race because it lifts them and empower them so we do need muslim sports heroes Mm -hmm. and academics and doctors so Mm -hmm. they can look up to they can just embrace their identity and impact the world around them positively so what i ask from you is to help us in your school at your job in your neighborhood help us with this small bit of empowering the youth because they are the solution to all the bigotry that we see that involves and affects all of us.
1: That was Ismail Al-Fath. Next up, Malou Innocent. There are many competing perspectives in the political discourse about Islam. I'm not going to take you back to the third century. I'll just take you back to August 2008. Athletes from around the world were competing in the Beijing Summer Olympics. Russia had just invaded Georgia. And Barack Obama was receiving the Democratic candidacy for the presidency just 30 miles away in in Denver. I myself was thousands of miles away on the other side of the earth in Pakistan. I was conducting field research for the book project, Perilous Partners. I was interviewing officials, uh, deposed judges, members of civil society, even people on the street to get their perspective on both U.S. foreign policy toward the Muslim world and U.S.-Pakistan relations, both during the Cold War and the War on Terror. Uh, Some of my fondest memories were uh, singing the Backstreet Boys (laughs) in part of the valleys and with locals. But also that same month, what I later realized was that five women were buried alive because they wanted to choose their own husbands. And in fact, more than 1,000 women each year are killed in Pakistan as a result of defending their family's honor. This is a very difficult subject. And the reason I bring up these stories is that there's a juxtaposition Backstreet Boys on one hand, Burying Women Alive on the other. There are so many competing perspectives in this discourse, and we can't just characterize Islam as just one-dimensional. It's very complex. And what I want to do today is just sort of outline some of the, the perspectives on Islam and the three major ones, one being the idea that it's a peaceful religion in need of Western acceptance, what I would call the acceptance camp. There's also this notion that it's this backward religion, impervious to change, this sort of skeptical camp. And, of course, there is this middle ground, one that says we should accept Islam and accept Muslims, while also speaking bluntly about the issues of radicalism and extremism. And I would argue that although all three camps are extremely controversial, and this is a very sensitive subject, trigger warning, we're going to be uh, dealing with a lot of culturally loaded terms, um, each camp has their merits but they massively overstate their claims. So let me begin with the acceptance camp. This was best embodied by the Barack Obama administration. In 2009, he had a speech in Cairo where he's reaching out to the Muslim world in what he called a new beginning. It called for mutual understanding, confronting extremism, and sought common ground And he also pointed to the contributions of medieval Islam. In fact, what many Americans, many in the West forget, is that it was the translation of of the corpus of Greek literature and of philosophy and of medicine and of physics that was translated in the Arab world and was fueled the European Renaissance and the Enlightenment movement. That was something that many people don't even understand, and that's what was highlighted in in his administration. What Bragamama wanted to do was mend relations with the Muslim world after the Bush years, And he saw what was the reaction against the West. And this is something that we really don't often get to now, of course, in the new administration under President Trump, to put that lightly. (laughs) President Obama actually avoided the term Islamist terrorism because it suggests that Muslims as a community are a problem. He also made an effort to avoid saying that Al-Qaeda or ISIS were Islamic because it handed religious legitimacy to these groups. And what he did is he emphasized that Islamic teachings do not support terrorism. It's the twisted ideology that supports terrorism. And, in fact, what's interesting is that a 2017 Pew Research poll found that U.S. public views on Muslims and Islam is actually getting more positive in recent years as the memory of 9-11 fades. Those who associate Islam with violence has declined since 2014, since the last poll was done. And those who believe there is little or no support for extremism in the Muslim-American community outnumber those who do believe there is a substantial support for extremism in the U.S. Some analysts, at least, or some critics, dubbed Obama's outreach to the Muslim world as the apology tour. But the fact is that when we see bias and discrimination against Muslims and Muslim-Americans, it creates the us-versus-them mentality that actually increases support for terrorism and also increases passive support. Because if radicals can point to the discrimination in the West, then it shows that, well, they're not on your side. The West doesn't have your support. So it's easy to to characterize this position as apologetic or even as morally relativistic, but it's not. It's a nuanced position. And this takes me to the second major camp I call the skeptical camp. This takes a cold, hard, and uncomfortable look at the realities of Islam. And what these people often do is they point to that most terrorist groups around the world are led by Muslims, and they say that they fight in the name of Islam. They still talk about the barriers to tolerance within Muslim communities, the, the death threats to those who draw Muhammad, The child sex abuse scandals in the UK, Now I would point to the child sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church, being a Catholic, but hey. (laughs) Um, And of course, uh, the Gallup 2018 polls found that Americans with greater self-reported prejudice toward Muslims are more likely to say that Muslims around the world don't want peace. So those two things are very highly correlated. Now, the Weekly Standard senior editor, Christopher Caldwell, garnered high praise from both the left and the right for his book, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe about Muslim immigration to the continent. He writes that Muslims are less susceptible to European cultural influence than other immigrant groups such as Sikhs, Hindus, and Afro-Caribbeans, and that political correctness and multiculturalism, born out of guilt about colonialism and shame about the Holocaust, do not allow such views to be expressed openly in Europe. Award-winning journalist and author Christine Douglas-Williams, in her book The Challenge of Modernizing Islam, interviewed moderate and reformist Muslims and wanted to get into their psyche about the cognitive dissonance about reconciling the contemporary mores with certain beliefs so for instance God mandates death for apostasy stoning for adultery amputation of the hand for theft sanctions the sexual enslavement of infidel women the devaluation of a woman's testimony warfare against the subjugation of non-muslims this perspective is incredibly cold it looks at the realities but it only looks at those realities it doesn't necessarily look at the need for acceptance and the idea that there are moderate Muslims, both in the West and in in Islam, in Islamic world in general. And it's easy to pan this perspective as narrow-minded, but there's also some cold hard facts that we must understand and not just painted as Islamophobic. In fact, a 2013 Pew survey found, and this is really tough, that there's wide support for the death penalty for leaving Islam in Egypt, Jordan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, where the majority of Muslims held that view. And in Bangladesh just last year, you may have heard that there were several cases of secular bloggers who were hacked to death with machetes. This takes me to the middle ground perspective. Tolerance movement accepts Muslim and accepts Islam, but they say it's time to talk about the problem of radicalism. And this sort of implies that there's some basic incompatibility or tension between the tenets of Islam and the principles of democracy. Various Western intellectuals and even some Muslim academics and leaders say that the religion needs an enlightenment or a reformation where we separate the mosque from the state. And a 2017 Pew Research poll, the one that I cited earlier, also found the U.S. public is split on whether there's a natural conflict between Islam and democracy. And these are even from people who show positive views and perceptions of Muslims and Islam. So what is this reformation movement? It's the notion that any sort of reformation with Islam must be done from within to no longer allow radicals to treat the Prophet Muhammad as a deity or a sacred object and to update the Quran. There's also the notion of changes to Islamic jurisprudence and social thought and more critical thinking within religious and political traditions. Now, there are also critics of this view who say that to say that Islam and Christianity are comparable is very simplistic and inane and even naive. But I think that what they get to is that Islam and Christianity certainly are institutionally different. And I'll explain that just briefly if I have some time. And then for obviously historical and cultural reasons. But there are things that I think if the Muslim community wants to do it, they can and they should. But it shouldn't be imposed on them from the West. If anything, any sort of reformation movement must be done from within. So the differences within Islam and Christianity, which I'll just lay out very briefly. Theological. Theological. Uh, Beginning nearly a thousand years ago, European universities were legally autonomous institutions that developed their own scholarly norms and curriculum. That institutionalized skepticism and inquisitiveness alongside religion. And it opens orthodoxy up to debate, and information that contradicted beliefs were deemed relevant. And even in the West, knowledge and reason were believed to precede Christianity. And Augustine advocated philosophy as an aid to interpreting revelation. However, in early Islam, curriculum submitted to the instruction of religious authorities. And there was an absence of independent institutions dedicated to learning and scholarship. If anything, those mosques and those institutions, religious uh, regulation was spread into the private and public life. And this is actually the same in medieval China. Because it had failure to institutionalize free inquiry and reconcile faith faith and reason, we see more rigidity in the curriculum and what some would say is rote learning of the Quran rather than inquisitiveness or challenging to authority. There's also the political distinction between Islam and Christianity. Muhammad was both a prophet and a political leader who governed the religious community he founded. And from its earliest days, religion and politics were interdependent, and even today many muslim majority countries have sharia law as the basis for their legitimacy juxtapose that with christianity where jesus was an outsider who ruled no one his beliefs did not become religion until centuries after his death and was still subordinate to rome and christ made the distinction between public life and private life quote render to caesar the things that are caesar render to god the things that are god that separated the terrestrial from the Celestial Authority. And that's an important distinction. So let me just wrap this up, bring this all to a close. I think we often reduce perspectives on Islam to, again, the caricature of either it being backwards or it being totally accepting, and we must either embrace it or reject it. There are many perspectives on this issue. Not one is absolutely right. And I think many of us can learn from a discussion about it. And the idea that we must reject one view or another, actually helps those sides that disagree with one another, because they can easily say, well, the fact that we can't dis- debate these issues openly shows that there is no, there is no reason, there is no, there is no logical discussion, there is no meeting of minds, there's no way to address this issue. So we must have an open debate about this, we must have open discussion. And we must also understand that moving away from the tabloid headlines, that to put it simply, there is no satisfying answer. If we want to look at our own evolution over time, over the centuries, it was very bloody, very difficult to get to where we are today. And I think having that humility and having that understanding and having that historical perspective is important as we look at Islam. That was Malu Innocent. Next up is Christine Tubianahi.
2: I have spent more than half of my life as a a convert to Islam, and I'm not here actually to talk about my personal story, although I'm, I'm willing later if there are questions but I'm here more to talk about the organization that I work for because I think it really is the model for what is and what should be Islam here in America. And I want to actually start with a Quranic verse also that I think kind of frames who we are and the work that we do and that we strive to do on a daily basis. So this is uh, from the Quran, from the holy book also, from chapter 49, verse 13. It's, oh behold, we have created you from a single pair of a male and female and made you into nations and tribes so that you may come to know one another." So just think about that for a moment. We believe, if you kind of break that down, that all humans are equal, and that's irrespective of race, color, nationality, gender, Our organization, Islamic Relief, is the largest humanitarian organization that is faith-inspired by Muslim values. We operate in about 60 countries around the world as a first response for all types of disasters, from natural disasters to the many, many conflicts we see nowadays. We've been around for about 35 years. And we work very close in tandem with some of the other large NGOs, such as Catholic Relief, In fact, they are one of our largest partners, and we work together in places that we may have a presence and they can't get in, or vice versa. So for example, we operate heavily in Yemen. Uh, We're one of the only organizations that are still able to be there on the ground with, with the current conflict, but Catholic Relief and their community support us with funds and other resources. Similarly, in Ecuador a couple of years ago when there was an earthquake, or even in Mexico, We don't necessarily have offices there, but our community is compassionate and responds to those in need, and so we'll mobilize our resources and get them to their offices. So we basically operate under a couple of premises, that all human beings are created equal, there's an innate dignity in all of us, we all have a right to self-determination, our holy book and our religion command us to act kindly and justly to all, all of our neighbors regardless of faith. And we are obliged to tackle injustice in all forms. So we work mostly um, internationally, although in the last decade or so, we've seen that there are more and more problems here plaguing us in the United States, injustice and systemic issues that we need to address as well. So we're working a lot on, as was mentioned, you know, homeless issues, uh, prison reentry into the community, food security. We run a lot of food shelters, um, just all sorts of issues that we work on, both in a programmatic sense. And then we have a very robust team in Washington, D.C., where we're headquartered, uh, where we're doing advocacy and policy. And, yes, it is a, it is a changed environment the last couple of years. We felt like a lot of the issues that we worked on, we were heard. We come to these policy meetings, and often the other folks in the room or the government officials are surprised to see us because we're not coming with a narrative of talking about terrorism. But we're coming to talk about food stamps and why children are going hungry and what we can do to set up feeding programs in their schools or during the summer when they're not getting food that they can take home. We are a fabric of this community and we have these same concerns. But we're also working and tackling on the issues within our own community that, as was just mentioned, can be sometimes problematic in the discourse and in the narrative that is portrayed. So I actually just came back from the UN CSW, the Consultation on the Status of Women, UN Women's Conference, where women from all over the world gather and delegations come from across the world to talk about the issues that are impacting women Um, and holding them back from being productive members of societies and and for their countries to develop further. And we actually launched um, a consultation on gender justice, where we brought together partners of all faiths and then within our own faith community to talk about some of these very hard issues, such as domestic violence, such as uh, early and forced marriage. And we want to create a platform where we get buy-in from other organizations and other groups and other countries and other ministries that we can hold ourselves accountable to some of these very hard issues. And really, we work a lot with the youth as well because it is empowering the young people to find that passion, to give them a constructive outlet. We do a lot of volunteer projects Uh, We send people to post-recovery here in the U.S. Uh, We're working in North Carolina with uh, the Methodist Church to do post-recovery house building uh, for people from Hurricane Matthew that are still living in trailers. Um, And so we get these youth together across different faith traditions that have no building experience to rebuild homes and communities. We are also the only organization that is an official Muslim organization that is an official partner of the American Red Cross as a disaster response team. So we go into your communities if there's a tornado or an earthquake or a wildfire, and we're there picking up debris and we're there talking to the community. In fact, we were just the only Muslim organization that was asked to come to the Florida shootings to actually give spiritual counseling to some of the families that were affected when their children were shot and killed. And we were able to provide them with some financial assistance. But I want to give a story about this work that we do that's difficult is not always appreciated. So Louisiana, as you know, has been plagued by a lot of different floods and and disasters over the last couple of years. And we went in uh, on one of the recent ones, a couple of I want to say maybe two years ago, with the Red Cross. So our vests are emblazoned, American Red Cross, Islamic Relief. And we're a disaster team that's there to help in those really difficult moments. And we came in to that community in Louisiana. And the local sheriff said to us and warned us, "Uh, we're a gun-toting state and we can't guarantee your safety. And in fact, we don't really want you here. And... This was, you know, to us very eye-opening because the work that we're doing and we're trying to change this narrative in the media and show that we are a fabric of the community and to have that kind of response was very disheartening. And again, this was, I want to say, even before the election change where we've seen a lot of these tensions and some of these reactions, in fact, get worse. To commend them, the American Red Cross actually said to the local sheriff, well, if you don't want them, we can't assist you in this community. And Mm -hmm. so we packed up and left. To the detriment, I believe, of of that community getting to know a Muslim. Once these communities have seen us picking up the debris in their community or handing out a cash card, their perception changes. And we get a lot of wonderful warmth and support from those communities. We need to change our narrative ourselves, but we also do need the help of all of you. Uh, be it through the media, be it through reaching out. We can't do it alone. That was Christine Tubianahi. Now she, Malou, and Ismail will field questions from the audience. We'll continue our show on Hemispheres. It's looking into perspectives on Islam after a brief musical interlude. Welcome back to our show on Perspectives on Islam. This is Nikki Geiser on Hemispheres. You're listening to KG and KGNU. Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins.
3: What kinds of activism are we seeing in in Muslim communities in America in in the current environment?
2: Our organization is a microcosm of the greater Muslim society in the United States. Um, We have converts, born native Muslims, Muslims that are first generation, second generation all colors all spectrums all languages and that's one of the reasons that I love working there we're about to celebrate our 25th anniversary this year here in the US but much longer internationally we try and get the youth involved we think it's really important with all the negative imagery that they see that they have an outlet for their passions and for their energy so just in the past couple of weeks we have had a bunch of food pack out events some of that food was packed up and was sent overseas to Africa to school feeding programs we also had some food packing programs uh, that are actually gonna be distributed here in the United States, we do that as well. We have a, an event every fall called Day of Dignity that's actually for the homeless population and we do it in a lot of major urban centers. We do it in Denver every year actually. I've been to that one and it's one of our best ones where we provide health flu, flu shots and health screenings and dental checkups and free haircuts and a warm meal. and some warm clothes, um, so I, I, there is a lot of this activism going on. The The problem is, and I work in public affairs and I have a media team that works with me, the media rarely picks this up. You know, as, as hard as we're out there doing things in the community, and I just mentioned the one that happens every year in Denver, you've probably never heard about it. So that is the challenge. Uh, they like the stories that are sensational, they don't like the stories to hear the people that are rolling up their sleeves and, and in the communities.
0: Yeah, yeah. This discourse that we're having right now is us telling you how nice we are. <laughs> but but that's not really what I want to be telling you. That's not really what from our perspective and our theology, that's not what religion is about. It's about how do I live my life in the way that God Almighty wants me to. With my family, with my children, with my neighbor, with my community, with the environment around me. What I want to be teaching my children and people around me is not to, well, here's how you tell people that you're nice. No, I want to tell them how to live, how to be honest, how to work hard, how to live his faith. Our faith is actually quite simple. It's the concept of tawheed or monotheism. And we live our life the way he wants us to do through all the prophets that he sent to teach us what that is. Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Jacob, Muhammad, Ismael, all of them. I don't get to do any of this because I'm just too busy telling them, here's how you tell them that you're okay. That you're not a terrorist. So we have to do it. That's what the, that's what the discourse is right now. How do we all help our sick people? How do we all help our homeless people? How do we all help our depressed teens? How do we all help people that are struggling to make a living? But we're too busy talking about who's a good guy, who's a bad guy.
3: To the extent that radical Islam can be said to be primarily a phenomenon among disaffected Muslim youth, is there legitimate concern about high population growth in the Islamic world?
1: There has been concern about what has been called in in the academic discourse a youth bulge uh, in the MENA area, the Middle East and North Africa. If you look at sort of any population with a large percentage of males, whether that be the Middle East or that be China... For instance, uh, there are theories about the increased likelihood for aggressive behavior in general, whether that be through militarism or through radicalism. So that is certainly a concern. The disaffection is interesting because what you see in a lot of the Arab states and sheikdoms of the Gulf is that they're trying to move away from just strictly petrol economy and to diversify their economies, so they're not just handing out, um, I guess, what would be essentially a universal basic income without any sort of meaning or purpose behind it. If you get a check every month without any idea of that you're actually producing something, it could also create that effect. You see pockets of the Middle East and Persian Gulf, and also in in Africans, where people are poor, but they don't resort to radicalism or extremism. You also find that many top members of Al-Qaeda were highly educated. They had secondary and post-secondary degrees, medicine and engineering. They came from wealthy backgrounds, and they were radicalized. So last week, actually, our entire office took a field visit to the U.S.
2: Holocaust Museum, partially because... Their current exhibit right now is on Syria. Well, let me just say, the thing that we came away with, or I personally, that was the most kind of shocking and disheartening were about the Jewish population that had left Europe that were on boats. They were actually sent to the Caribbean first, but the Caribbean wouldn't let them. the boats dock, and then the U.S. wouldn't let them dock, and then Canada wouldn't let them dock, all of these refugees, and they went back to Europe, and then they got exterminated to kind of look in the context of what's going on now around the world and this huge refugee situation that we have. We're over 60 million, the highest number of refugees fleeing since World War II, and no countries, including our own, wanting to take them in. I have visited the Middle East. I've worked with some of the refugee populations. That's where the disfranchisement is happening, and that's where you have the potential to radicalize because there are young kids and teenagers that have no hope They're out of school. They have nowhere to go. No country wants to take them in. This is where we need to open our hearts and our homes because we're part of the problem.
3: How do you reconcile the interpretation of the Quran that all people are created equally with gender injustice in your community without religious or cultural reformation?
0: You have to put it in context and go back historically to see where else in history, time and locations, where there was gender discrimination. Was it because of religion was it because of socioeconomic reasons? Was it because of just inherent tradition? Why is it popular? Why is it accepted? It would be naive and unfair to solely tie it to religion. Discrimination against voting, ability to own property, ability to inherit, ability to be, to practice the profession. When we look at it within The Muslim, majority Muslim countries, we have to look at it in that context and fairly look at all the reasons. As Muslims, we believe that everyone is created equal with their rights and have to be respected. How does that get applied? By who, when, where? We do have work to do within our Muslim communities. Our own Muslim brothers and sisters have those issues where they think religion gives them the right to discriminate. Yes, that is an issue. We have to fix it. But that's a problem that's far more complex than simply saying, this text tells me to do this this way, I'm just going to do it. And then blame the text. So in Morocco, in the city of Vas, there is the world's oldest university established by a woman, Fatima al fihriya She established it was leading the curriculum construction the design of everything and she funds it because she was rich and we can go to many examples where women in Islam were leaders in many fields even in the battlefield actually believe it or not in medicine in education etc but that doesn't negate the problems
1: Also in in Saudi Arabia, there are efforts to integrate uh, men and women, especially on college campuses. And it's, I mean, you'll take a science class or an engineering class or a political theory class, and it'll be uh, mixed, uh, mixed classrooms. But those facilities are often heavily guarded and are removed from the general population.
3: I would also just add to that, as somebody that has studied gender and Islam in Southeast Asia and especially Indonesia, One thing that's really important to keep in mind, right, is that there are social structures in place that predate Islam and Christianity in different parts of the world. And so in Southeast Asia, for example, the social structure has been somewhat more egalitarian with regard to gender for a very long time. And so when Islam came into Southeast Asia, and even though it it has taken root very deeply, but it's intermixed with a particular kind of social structure, so you don't see the kinds of prohibitions and restrictions on women in Indonesia that you might see in somewhere like Pakistan, which I would argue was very conservative with regard to gender long, long before Islam. Someone asked, what are some helpful tools you would recommend for a non-Muslim American to help combat the negative views toward Islam as seen in many parts of the United States? How can we help from an outside perspective? If you don't
2: know Muslim... Get to know a Muslim. There's lots of opportunities, especially with the holy month of Ramadan, which is a month of spirituality and fasting that is soon approaching in the middle of May. Uh, The date changes each year, so it's getting closer. Um, There are many open house types of events that a lot of uh, Muslim student association, mosque, community groups will do that they'll open up to the neighbors. Um, But we encourage it to be a two-way dialogue as well. So you know, the churches and the synagogues can similarly you know, invite a congregation or invite a refugee family. There's always using the media as a platform, letters to the editor. Our organization, we're launching a Silver Anniversary Community Impact Grant Challenge this year where we're actually going to be giving out free money to communities to do this type of actual interfaith service work. You've got an idea and there's something you want to do to feed the homeless or... You know, to do a soup kitchen or, or any kind of project that you come up with. We've actually got some sourcing for that um, because we want communities to get together in a real way, not just dialogue, but doing service together.
0: Vote. Go vote. Vote for the right people.
3: Right, we have a question for Malou. Would you agree that Islam is shaped by the different global cultures in which Muslims live? For example, in third world countries, you can find dictatorships, oppression and occupation that actually stymie true is the expression of true islam.
1: Oh certainly, absolutely and thank you for that question. Oftentimes whether it be a more conservative or more liberal or progressive interpretation or practice of Islam that usually is dependent upon the local culture, you know, sometimes the socioeconomic forces. That's definitely clear when you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, which is arguably the most conservative of of the Muslim-majority countries around the world. They exported a very conservative brand of Islam known as Salafism, known in a very pejorative way as Wahhabism. They don't refer to it uh, themselves that way. It is an extremely austere brand of Islam. But that's a local cultural uh, interpretation that originated from the Arabian Peninsula and is not very popular. How do you
3: reconcile what the holy book, the Quran here, teaches and what is practiced on the ground specifically on justice and humility? Uh, And this applies to other religions as well.
0: Absolutely. And how I justify it? Human greed, human weakness. Humans. Humans. They know what they're supposed to do. I don't know, you can call it weakness, you can call it greed, you can call it lust. But these are things that we face in any religion, right? And our weaknesses to, to do what we want to do versus what we should be doing.
2: And there's a lot of good scholars out there that are trying to reconcile these discrepancies that I, I would point you to, even in terms of, of gender, and that a lot of these original interpretations came down in patriarchal societies and, and through uh, men. But uh, for example, one is Dr. Jerusha Lampty. She's a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York, um, has done a lot of prolific work and writings around what some of these discrepancies are and, and pulling apart the actual original teachings and showing you know, where those discrepancies came and how people in modern society can transform the societies to live it the way that it should be lived.
1: The literalist tradition we see in various faiths, whether that be in Islam or in Christianity, I think the issue with Islam is that there's no Catholic-style clerical class. Like, who do you appeal to to make these theological changes? I think that's sort of where the discrepancy lies.
3: Many people blame Islam for gender inequality in the Middle East. Please speak to why this stigma is right or wrong and any relation this may have with toxic masculinity or terrorist organizations.
0: I don't know. I mean, we can just look at home here and just look at the facts and statistics of who our major terrorists are. It crosses religions and and continents, and I'd love to solve that problem.
1: I think there are certainly biological differences between the sexes. For centuries, thousands of years even, we've seen that women are often the booty, literally and figuratively speaking, of war and conquest.
2: As an organization, when we go and do advocacy and policy work in Washington, D.C., and we come to these kind of forum or we're meeting with elected Congress members. The questions that they do always tend to ask are around gender and terrorism as if that's the only thing our community can or wants to talk about. And again, we always have to turn that back around and say, no, we're here to talk about why there are hungry children and why you're cutting food stamps and why are there homeless people on the streets and all the of the other social ills. So these types of forum always tend to bring out a certain subset of questions but that's not always what our community wants to talk about
3: is there a feeling of racism or bigotry toward the muslim religion when um, the white christian extremists that we see committing crimes are not portrayed in the media the same way as muslims and is that a concern for you all
1: in Austin, I mean, there was this whole debate about whether to label the, the bomber there a domestic terrorist. And, you know, the, I guess the local authorities said that there were certain legal distinctions and categories that made them reluctant to label him as such, but I think it would have been without question if he was uh, of a certain background. Uh, he would have been deemed a terrorist quite quickly.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating, but the media controls the national discourse and people's opinions. But uh, that's the world we live in. The media controls how we think about people.
2: You know, I want to commend the media that actually go out there and find the stories. I mentioned the Day of Dignity events that we do around the nation where we serve the homeless population. And um, we also serve a lot of veterans in those. And, And this was when there was a lot of discourse coming out of the current administration about, well, why would we support refugees coming in when we have our own Populations such as veterans that need support and and there's not enough money And we actually had a lot of veterans that were also homeless coming to some of these programs that we were doing and Samantha B If anyone watches that she came to our show and and brought together some veterans groups and some Muslim groups and, and showed How we're doing very similar work in tackling these social ills So I want to commend those you know people that actually go out and do that type of work and try and find the real stories
3: Well, somebody asked a a question about the Muslim ban and immigration policies, and um, I wanted to to broaden the the question a little bit to get your sense on what what impact are these new policies having on Muslims, both in America and, and globally?
1: None of the countries that were directly tied with 9-11 were necessarily on that list. So I think that was more of a a political stunt, not necessarily anything that had anything to do with, quote-unquote, national security. Assuming that labeling those countries as such would have had any impact on uh, radicalism other than by further exacerbating the problem.
2: Some of you may have known in the outgoing months before the Obama administration Uh, Left, they did a surge to bring in as, you know, to try and hit the numbers of refugees, and they did uh, succeed in hitting that number, which was 90,000. I believe the new number, and I don't quote me on this, although I can look it up, is about 40 to 45 that are going to be allowed in this year. But as of last week, because we get the updated numbers as actual refugees are coming as an organization that helps serve refugees, there have only been 10,500 as of last week that have come in. And we are at this rate, at uh, the rate they're being vetted and they're coming in, we won't even hit that low target number this year. So resettlement is actually just one solution, and it only actually helps a very small minority population of people that get resettled into third countries. So it's our part to play, but um, it's not going to be a solution for the worldwide crisis. Any of you familiar
0: with the diversity lottery visa program? A president just honed in on it, and it's going to be shot. That's how I came here, by the way. Roast almonds on the street, and they sell them, and they give them to you in newspaper and magazine papers, and my dad once brought one home, and that's where the advertisement for the U.S. diversity visa, (laughs) (laughs) and that's how I got here. True story. That program has allowed me to be here at age 18, and because of this nation that's that's great, being great, still great, and will be great. Uh, I'm able to do what I'm doing. Like she said, it's a distraction. The whole band is a distraction from the real issues. It's a distraction from what we should be thinking, talking about. Um, and people are, no matter how they, 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 they obtain their visa, they're, they're vetted to, an, to a level that you guys, none of you guys want, would want to go through, even the lottery one. It's not like they throw my name in a hat, picked it up and gave me a visa and I traveled. The the process took 12 months, right? So anyway, I I thought I'd mention that just because you mentioned the word immigration, but um, it's a distraction.
3: With reference to the previous question regarding the various cultural facets of Islam, could there be any validity to the idea that there are potential risks associated with sheltering refugees? Can you share your thoughts on this issue?
1: I'm not too concerned about terrorists and radicals only because I do believe that our government will vet these immigrants highly enough that they will get sifted throughout the process and they'll likely not get through. And I think there's no such thing as perfect security. We have to accept that you know, terrorism can happen anywhere at any time, whether it be a white nationalist or a Muslim radical. Um, but what I would be more concerned about when it comes to opening our gates and opening our doors uh, to immigrants um, is if these people come from cultures that are more conservative then maybe we'll see, you know, more uh, homophobia or more, you know, skepticism towards, um, you know, uh, women's rights in the in the workplace or or in the professional realm or in the personal realm for that matter. Um, there might be higher likelihood of anti-Semitism. I know that's a difficult subject to broach, um, but certain cultures and certain societies around the world are more conservative than we are. And I, I'm the product of a, of an immigrant, uh, and I see the good that this country has done and we've come a long way when it comes to civil rights and women's rights and protecting even the environment and conservation and I'd hate to see those slowly eroded um, because of cultural reasons.